Welcome to Defen episode number 51 and today uh, as usual this is Vijay from Holland Ref from Belgium and we have our special guest Sean from the US of America Yes I'm from the Bay Area California at the moment Welcome to the episode Sean you, But you sound about as American as I sound Belgian <laughs> <laughs> Yeah I'm I'm a transplant <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're so all transplants. In fact, all three of us are transplants, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Because well, I, I yeah, technically I crossed some oceans, but yeah, so <laughs> from India to here. Yeah. Uh if Iranian airspace is clear then it is faster, but otherwise yeah. you need to go out I had to go over water to get the channel. Yeah, to, well, exactly. <laughs> well, I went in a tunnel, but shut up. Okay. I went underwater. <laughs> <laughs> And Sean, you you were originally from the UK. Yeah, I was born and raised in Northern Ireland, and my family moved back to the mainland in '69, and then I moved over here in '99. '99. So I've been 99. here 20 years. Right. So which which place are you based in the US now? I'm in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. You know the high tech Silicon Valley center, but ah, cool. I'm actually on the east side of the bay. So I'm in a lovely little suburban community and i can stay away from the craziness that is silicon valley <laughs> okay it's a beautiful part of the world though isn't it it really is I mean, oh know. yeah i mean you know today today it's going to be in the 80s um it's it's been really nice here we get rain just through the winter and then through the summer it's all just dry and warm Uh, which of course is why we have so many wildfires. It's yeah, but that's, yeah, that's the bad part. Yeah, yeah that's the downside. Yeah. But you know, um, it, we don't get tornadoes, we don't get hurricanes, uh, and we don't get flooding. So I'll take yeah. it. One out of five. But you, you do. I mean, well, you're you're kind of uh, on a, a San Andreas fault, aren't you? So do you, I mean? I know friends of mine who live out there. They had to have special accommodations in their houses. Special. underpinnings and earthquake proofing is that is that something you have, you have to do as well yeah um where i live i'm right on top of the haywood fault right um, okay the it's the nature of fault lines in california that that's where they tended to build the roads because that was the best <laughs> place to put roads uh, and i'm literally just a couple of miles off one of the main interstate freeways here right, uh, right. so we do get a, a earthquakes from time to time um To be honest, if it's a four or less, you just ignore it. Um, right. Even if it's a five, it's kind of like, well, if it was right under your house, things would fall off shelves and break. Uh, but yeah, it does mean you have to have, you know, everything that's up on a shelf has museum putty to hold it in place. <laughs> um, the big bookshelf here in the office is actually strapped to the wall so it can't fall down. Right, um, right, right. You, you do have to think about these things because yeah. there's no warning. I mean, you just suddenly everything shakes and... then you just pick up the pieces and go back to normal life. Well, let, let's hope for the duration of this podcast at least that <laughs> we don't get too many wobbles. <laughs> so, uh, Sean, um, uh, obviously you've been in the industry for, for many, many, many years. Decades. So, <laughs> decades, yes, exactly. Yeah. We joined so, the veteran crew on Defen. Okay, <laughs> uh, can you give us like a whirlwind tour of, of your experience? Yeah, sure. Um, When I was back in university in England, I, I kind of got interested in programming languages. Uh, for my finally a project, I actually wrote an APL interpreter. 
Uh, and then I stayed on and did PhD research into functional programming. So I was looking at implementation and design of functional programming languages. Um, and it was a time in England when pretty much every university was designing its own programming language. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so when I went out into the world, because of those connections, I ended up working for a tiny little uh, compiler company in England. Uh, and we actually built the world's one of the world's first ANSI validated C compiler systems. What was were, the company, think, by the way? It was called Knowledge Software. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and pretty much no one's heard of them because they're really tiny. Because I remember the um, instruction set, and they had a compiler as well. And... Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of an interesting time. I mean, you know, Microfocus, we worked with them a fair bit. They had their COBOL compiler uh, in when we got our C compiler verified, it was the same day, I believe, as uh, InMOS and I think maybe Borland. And we were like the first three wow, okay. to get the certification. And so I went from there to working on C++. Uh, I got involved with the C++ standards work and was on the committee there for eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I discovered Java. Um, and back then, I was still very skeptical. Java was brand new and no one really knew if it would stick around. Mm -hmm. um, but that got me uh, onto Java, and that got me into Macromedia, which was just after I moved to America. Uh, and funnily enough, what happened then was Macromedia bought Alaire, who had Cold mm -hmm. Fusion. Yeah, right. And yeah. so yeah. suddenly Macromedia, which was this Java and C++ shop, um, we're confronted with this Cold Fusion product. And because it was our own product now, uh, dog fooding said, yep, you're going to build web stuff with cold fusion. So while, you know, we still did C++ and Java, a lot of our customer facing work was cold fusion. Yeah. And then Adobe bought Macromedia and I lasted about a year there before getting a little frustrated with Adobe mm. um, and went off and was freelance for a while, worked for a startup, uh, doing a mixture of different languages, but at the time primarily Cold Fusion, mm -hmm. um, and I then ended up working at another sort of startup-like company, uh, and they were a Cold Fusion shop, but open to other tech, and they had a particular problem process that they had tried to build various ways that just needed to run 24-7 and uh, scavenge the database for updates and put information in search engines and send emails. and. Cold Fusion isn't particularly good for anything that's a continuous process because it's really designed for request response web mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, for for uh, for the people who are who are, I think, younger generation, maybe you can explain <laughs> like what Cold Fusion is. So it's like pre JSP, pre PHP days. Right? Yeah, Almost. it's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cold Fusion yeah. got its start in the mid '90s, um, mm. and it was created as a way to help people build websites with dynamic content. Yeah. So in the early days, it was you literally had an HTML page, and you wrote in, and I believe in the early days, tags that began yes. with DB. Mm. And so you could read database content into a web page. <laughs> uh, and then they changed it to be called Cold Fusion and yeah. changed the tags to be CF. Yeah. Uh, and by the time I encountered it in, let me see, 2000, 2001, I guess, Alaire had started an initiative to rewrite it completely from scratch as a JVM language. Yeah. And so the first Cold Fusion I ever used had some OO extensions in it. It was essentially a dynamic scripting language for the JVM 
that mm. compiled on demand to JVM bytecode. Mm. Yep. And so, you know, it's it's dynamic. You can do metaprogramming. It now has a, a very nice JavaScript-like uh, scripting syntax as well as the old template syntax. Mm. Uh, there are open source implementations. For the last 10 years, whenever I've done any uh, Cold Fusion, I've used Lucy, which mm. is a European-based group that has an open source project that is a full open source uh, implementation of the Cold Fusion language. Mm. Um, and so while I was working with that at the new company, looking at this problem process, uh, one of the things I thought I'd try out would be Scala. Mm -hmm. So yep. learn some Scala, built it in Scala, uh, and it kind of worked. Um, you know, it was new to us. Didn't kind of really sit well with some of the other team members because Cold Fusion, you edit, you reload your browser, and yeah, it's compiled and, it and run. Mm -hmm. yep. um, Scala, of course, you know, compile for ages, deploy, restart your system. Um, yep. Back then, it was before play and things like that. Mm. Uh, and so I had seen some chatter about Clojure. And back in early 2010, uh, Amit Rathor, who wrote Clojure in Action, he had a startup in Silicon Valley and advertised that he was doing a workshop to learn closure on a Saturday morning mm -hmm. for, it was like 200 bucks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, yeah, 200 bucks of my money, I could go do that. And I thought it was fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I was instantly hooked. And over the next year, I looked at whether or not we could use it at work mm -hmm. and rewrote the Scala process in closure as a test. And we went into production with Clojure in spring 2011 on 1.3 Alpha 7 or Alpha 8, I think. Mm -hmm. That is pretty pretty early adoption. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we've been using Clojure in production since then. Mm. Uh, the company I work for is an online dating company. And so we have dozens and dozens of websites that all are targeted at what we call ethnic verticals. Yeah. So we have ArabLounge.com, EligibleGreeks.com, DesiKiss.com, uh, Latin Romantico, uh, and a whole bunch of other sites around that sort of thing. And mm. from having introduced a bit of closure into that Cold Fusion shop back in 2011, uh, we've gone to essentially all closure on the back end uh, over yeah. time and gradually retired the various bits of Cold Fusion code. We still have one fairly sizable app written in it. Um, mm. But it's mostly the sort of the view controller layer, and then yeah. all of the model is written in Clojure. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the database, data storage, what, what type of technology you use there? We, <laughs> we've used a bunch of stuff. Right now, we're mm. using Redis for sort of transient stuff mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. MySQL. Uh, we mm -hmm. were using MongoDB for a while. I was very enamored with MongoDB for a mm. while. Um, and we just found that trying to maintain a production-scale MongoDB uh, cluster as well as a production-scale MySQL cluster yep. was mm. expensive and frustrating. And in the end, we actually migrated everything into MySQL okay. and stopped using MongoDB. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've been uh, so you tried something in Scala, and then you 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 felt closure was more uh, yeah. attractive so what was the difference what was the difference or what did you find 
Well, uh, one of the things was, uh, um, as I said, it, it was a cold fusion shop. So the team were used to editing code, reloading in the browser, and it was just up and running there. Yeah. So Scala really didn't fit that, mm. but Clojure did because mm. you've got the REPL, REPL you yeah. can work dynamically with the code. Um, if you're building web apps, you have the watchers. As soon as you save a file, it reloads the code. You just reload mm -hmm. in the browser. So it actually fitted a lot better with what the mm -hmm. team culture was. Um, and everyone seemed to think it was really fun and interesting to learn this new Lisp language. Uh, so folks were pretty enthusiastic about it because it was new. Mm. What did Cold Fusion look like, by the way? Because I can't really remember coding it. I think, it. It I think I've like done some GSP. tag stuff a long time ago, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. did it look a look a, look a little bit like C or JavaScript or something, or was it more was it was it more kind of four G L E? It's it's evolved a lot over the years, and most people's experience with it still dates back to the early days when it was a proprietary system and it was all tag based. Mm. Um, yeah. But since the early 2000s, it developed a pretty solid scripting language uh, that has evolved over time. And so if you looked at modern Cold Fusion now, mm. you still have the tags for use in the HTML templates, yeah. but pretty much everything else is going to be written in a language that looks an awful lot like JavaScript. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's got full object-oriented capabilities, although it calls them components instead of classes. Um, it's got metaprogramming support, so you can modify components on at runtime. Um, you can do stuff like the the on missing method that okay. other languages have. Um, it's it's really quite a nice language these days, and it's it's kind of unfair that it's taken so long to evolve to that point. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people yeah, have yeah. just yeah. said, "Oh, you know, it's a proprietary <sighs> weird tag based system. Not interested." Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so, you know, there's an open source implementation, as I said, and uh, for people coming in who want a free, you know, fast, get up and running quickly system, yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of nice. But, so it's in the same you know, sort of space as PHP, really, but obviously PHP is so big now. Yeah. You know, it's yes, yeah. And I mean, it's very much niche. And I mean, you know, we're used to Clojure being a niche language, but CFML is, is super, super niche. And integrating Clojure and CFML is the ultimate in nicheness, I guess, is what you're doing. I guess it yeah. is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things where I wanted to be able to use Clojure as a library language so right. that we could rewrite certain pieces of the system in that. And so I created a bridge from Cold Fusion to Clojure uh, <laughs> and made it possible to dynamically load Clojure yeah. um, mm. through the old uh, Clojure Lang RT system at the mm. time. Uh, and so gradually we were able to rewrite the system from the bottom up mm. in Clojure. Um, and, you know, I've, I've kept up with that. So we changed over to the Clojure Java API when that mm. appeared, uh, which was 1.6, I believe. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's how we do the integration. We declare a set of namespaces we're going to use and the Cold Fusion code bootstraps that and pulls in all of those namespaces with require and sets up at runtime a what looks like a nested structure with functions in, which is the namespaces enclosure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so apart from having the parentheses in a slightly strange space for us, um, it 
looks like you're running closure code. Oh, <laughs> but how, how did the, because you started with functional programming and programming languages research, right? Long time Yeah, ago. long time and ago. Then, and then uh, you uh, switched to C++, which is object-oriented in, 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 in one sense, <laughs> and then Java, and then Cold Fusion. Um, so uh, how, how did this, this how, how do you see the functional programming thing in, in Clojure now compared to when you started? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because I I moved into the OO world because that's what you needed to do to get a job. Right. right. Um, yeah. You know, I'd, I'll be completely honest. If I'd have had the choice, I would have stayed with functional programming. Hmm. Um, and I must admit, when Haskell appeared in ninety one ish, yeah, um, it was drawn from a lot of the university languages that were mm. being um, mm. created. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very excited about Haskell. I was like, great, finally, you know, functional programming is going to take over the world. We've got this robust state-of-the-art language. And of course, that didn't happen. Mm. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I'll go learn C++ and work on that. And I never thought we'd get functional programming back, to be honest, in the mainstream. Um, mm. So when I started to see functional programming becoming more of a buzz yeah. uh, and seeing more adoption of the ideas from functional programming, it was really, really nice to come back home to that idiom. Mm. Yeah. But you, I guess you were, you were kind of like brought up if you're kind of like looking back at those university things to say there have been various people doing history of Haskell and history of FP in the UK and the US and everything. And obviously a lot of those systems draw their influence and their kind of like heritage from Lisps, but they're adding types and other kind of affordances to, to make life simpler, easier. That's always like a tricky concept, but they wanted, they wanted to make it more powerful in some ways. They wanted to make it more mathematical to prove more stuff essentially about what the, the characteristics of the system is. So in what, what's your, what was your kind of research and how do you feel about that now in terms of like that? I know it's always like the bullshit question, you know, but come on, let's just take it on. <laughs> yeah. We've got time. Yeah. It, it's Sunday <laughs> my, afternoon. <laughs> my focus, I mean, my focus when I was doing research was very much on looking at programming language design. What were good features to have in a programming language? What made things more expressive? And so I built a... Initially, what I did actually was I built a Lisp system mm. uh, using Peter Henderson's Lisp kit uh, mm. implementation. Uh, and so I had a small core Lisp interpreter. And then I built language features on top with a parser that took ML style languages uh, and compiled them down to Lisp and then mm. ran the Lisp uh, on the Lisp kit system. And one of the things that, that allowed me to do was to actually experiment with language features mm. in Lisp. Uh, and if they worked out, I would then rewrite them in the core language of the parser system that I'd built. Mm. Um, it, it, it's sort of, it's interesting to see that the functional programming kind of went two ways. Um, yeah. We had the ML family. Uh, which culminated in Haskell and various things we've had since then with F-sharp and OCaml and so on. Yep. Yeah. And the Lisp side of things sort of died out. Yeah. And I think the gut reaction people have to parentheses seems so visceral that a lot of people can't get past that, which has always surprised me because there's so little difference between C-style script languages 
and Lisp, for most code, you just move the parentheses. That's all you have to do. But would you would you say that this um, this opinion of yours is because you have been scarred by APL before? <laughs> Actually, that's true. Yes, of course. Uh, um, my final project at university was to build an APL interpreter. Uh, yeah, I actually had it, to implement it, it in some Pascal. Weird shit in it. Oh. Uh, you know, I liked APL. I thought APL was pretty impressive. Um, I mean, I, I, I tried it like one day or half a day or something using Emacs. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like all these weird symbols and shit. <laughs> like my yeah, brain blew up. <laughs> I, I, I'd done a sandwich placement year when I was at university. I did a sandwich placement with an insurance company. Uh, yeah. and discovered that they had a few people using APL there. Wow. Um, and I was blown away that this really compact language. Yeah. Uh, and, and one example that I used to give to people was, I think it was like a 13-character expression that mm -hmm. could find uh, a substring in another string. And if you changed one character, it would count how many times the substring appeared. And if you changed a different character, it would tell you what the index of the substring was <laughs> rather than just yes or no. Uh, and that compactness and expressiveness just yeah. blew me away. And so that's why when I went back uh, to university yeah. <laughs> after my placement year, I was like, I want to write an APL interpreter because it's a cool language. <laughs> I mean, it gives a new meaning to write-only programming, though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that's, it's kind of a little unfair. Um, but yes, if you are not familiar with APL, you look at it and it looks like a grab bag of math symbols and Greek letters. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think it looks like Egyptian hieroglyphics or something. You know, that, that, that's yeah. how it looked like. Like, nobody understands, are, are the, you know, the... the, the the weird thing that people were not able to decrypt so far. The Rosetta uh, Stone. Oh no! Okay. No, no, the some manuscript. Anyway, so I'm sorry. So <laughs> I, I understand your your <laughs> sorry for the digression into APL because I remembered my Emacs mode and I was like <laughs> getting confused by all this crap. Um, I was just so, I just add, I think that the the parentheses thing that the yeah I think when people look at the opening parentheses, I don't think there's such a difference. I think it's what 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 I hear and you know the people I speak to that don't program this but but see it for the first time. It's like whoa! How come there's like twenty parentheses at the end of that expression or ten off? You know that and that you don't notice it, but oh shit, yeah, there is, yeah. <laughs> Especially with web applications, yeah. you know, and React and Reframe and stuff like that. You suddenly have this like big bundle of like ten or fifteen parens at the end of your expression, which is meh. Doesn't matter, but you know. But if, <laughs> some it's, people it's the like same it. in JavaScript, right? If you have callbacks, I mean, JavaScript will have the same curly braces, like more than that. But I think syntactically, we are used to keeping them in different lines, so it, they they look thinned out, probably. Yes, that's possibly yeah, true as well. If, yeah. If yeah. you if you adopt sort of Lisp layout and indentation of your C style languages, oh, okay. they'll look pretty darn weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Because you'll have yeah. a line that ends in you know alternating. Braces, parentheses, and semicolons. Yeah, yeah. Um, it looks so, pretty natural to us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, look, look. Here's a Lisp programmer writing JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of functional programming, um, because these days I think Haskell is is uh, also you know becoming a bit popular. I just came back from Zuri Hack. I'm not sure if you can see. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. My T-shirt. Uh, so I was there and. Um, 
For I think about five milliseconds, I understood what zygohistomorphic preparamorphism is, <laughs> and then I and and then probably not, I didn't understand anything anymore. Um, but there, there seems to be because I go to Zurich, Zurich Hack uh, every year almost. Mm-hmm. So this year there've been like five hundred people. Wow. It, it has it has grown really big. So uh, it seems like Haskell is is gaining uh, a lot of traction. So. What what is your opinion on Haskell type of functional programming versus closure type of functional functional programming? You know, it, it's one of those weird debates that people get into because ultimately it nearly always comes down to do you like static type systems or do you like dynamic type systems? Yeah. Um, and there's trade-offs with both. And for all that it's great fun to argue the pros and cons, I think ultimately it comes down to a subjective preference of the developers. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I've worked, obviously, since you know I started with FP back in the, the early 80s. Um, and I've done OO since, uh, let me see, yeah, early 90s. Yeah. So, you know, I've gone back and forth between languages that are dynamic, that are strongly typed, uh, statically typed, rather. Yeah. And I just prefer dynamically mm. typed languages. Mm. You know, I understand the trade-offs. I understand why some people like statically typed languages. I can certainly see why those people love Haskell. Yeah. Um, but for me, I just find statically typed languages to be frustrating when I work with them. Mm. You know, so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of trade-offs. If, if you need a system where you are really sure that everything is is going to be close to a formal proof, mm. sure, Haskell is going to be great. Idris, if it ever goes mainstream, would be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot to be said for the additional uh, safety that a very, very strict uh, statically typed system can provide. Mm. But depending on what you're working on, there's also a lot to be said for a very flexible, very fluid um, dynamic language, especially when you have the fast feedback of mm. Clojure's REPL. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I find myself much more productive working with something like Clojure, mm. um, even though I'm going to be using it in the same style of programming as if I was working with Haskell. Well, yeah. One question for you, Sean. I mean, you mentioned about your earlier work where you would essentially flesh out your ideas in Lisp and then write them in the parser language. Is that something you ever attempted to do as well with Clojure? In other words, use Clojure. And I've heard people do this, you know, that they use Clojure as a kind of experimental land and then they will then they will write it in a, in a more kind of uh, optimized uh, for the hardware type language after they've got the, you know, the basic design and the feasibility all worked out. I, I could see myself doing it if I worked in a different industry. Mm. Um, you know, because I work in the web industry, closure is certainly fast enough. Uh, and there's, there's also still quite a lot of benefits of having closure in production since you can just REPL into a process and oh, inspect yeah. it and, and even, dare I say, apply patches live on the fly if you wish. Um, and like I say, if I was in, in some industry where, you know, we wanted the, the most optimized, um, systems driven 
setup, then yes, I could see rewriting these uh, proof of concepts or you know early exploration in something like Rust, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So in in I've uh, been playing a bit with with Rust as well. I was really curious, like especially given that it has a static type system and also the whole native compilation thing. And it's it's not. I mean, especially if you come from REPL side of it, then it feels strange to go back to compile cycle. <laughs> yeah, it it certainly can. Um, yeah, I, I I try to learn a new language every year or two. Yeah. Um, you know, the pro the pragmatic programmer book says try exactly. and learn a new language every year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so in addition to having been doing closure more and more full time since 2011, mm. uh, along the side I've I've learned Go, Elm, mm. um, Rust, mm. uh, Kotlin, and yeah. I've gone back to Haskell several times. Um, you know, I, I keep going back and thinking, well, I'll learn a bit more Haskell, I'll get more fluent with it. And then I'm like, ah, Haskell just drives me crazy. It's it's so frustrating to work with. So you know, it's always going to be language A, a bit of Haskell. Language B, a bit oh, of Haskell. Yeah. Um, while it's closure all the way through. So. It seems like my my sort of journey. So every year I, I go to Zuri Hack thinking that this is going to be the year of Haskell for me. And then I come back and okay, back to reality now. I'm done. I told you, it's the Finnegan's work of programming. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, talking about closure development, uh, or at least using closure for development. So, uh, Emacs or some other shit. You know, it's it. My story with Emacs is also kind of one of those long, weird <laughs> ones. Um, I started using Emacs back in the seventeen dot something. The seventeenth century. Oh my god. Yeah, seventeenth century. It certainly <laughs> felt like that at times. Um, so. Yeah, very early on in my career, I was an Emacs user. Mm -hmm. um, you know, machines were very low powered. Emacs was lightweight, fast, and powerful. Uh, I stuck with it through the 18 dot releases, and I think I was just into the beginning of the 19 dot releases when mm -hmm. I was beginning to work with languages that there was better support in other editors. Yeah, and so I moved off kind of into the IDE world for a while. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I used and absolutely loved while I was a C++ programmer was a, uh, a system called Together Soft. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. It came out of a German company, as I recall, mm. and you had both code editing and UML editing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you could draw a UML diagram and it would generate classes. Yeah. And yeah. if you yeah. modified the class hierarchy, it would redraw the UML. Yeah. Uh, and you could also draw sequence diagrams in UML, and mm. it would generate the sort of the conditional flow mm. uh, of your code, C++ yep. mostly yep. I was working mm. on. Um, and I absolutely loved that system. I thought it was terrific. Oh um, Sorry, my kids so, are playing games in the background. Sorry about that. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it, my cats are all being very well behaved at the moment, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to try not to disturb them. Otherwise, we'll have the same thing here. Um, but so didn't they, have, didn't they have Java version of, as well? They I remember did. Together, together J. Yeah. Together J, yeah. Holy yep. fuck. Okay. Yep. I've, no, yeah, no, I'm really old now. Okay. Builder. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. J Builder, yeah. Because yes. Poland bought it in the end. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I was using that. I was still doing work on systems where I tended to use VI quite a bit, sort of on mm. 
the systems, yeah. but for general development, I was using yes. IDEs. Hmm. And so when I started to look at Clojure, um, I think when I did the workshop with Amit, I used TextMate um, yeah. <laughs> and some early Clojure plugin and the REPL. Hmm. And as I started working with Clojure more and more, I tried a lot of different editors and integrations. And for mm -hmm. a while, I was using Eclipse with Counterclockwise, yep. mm -hmm. partly mm -hmm. because I was also using Eclipse for my non-closure programming. Yep. Um, but, of course, the more I worked with Clojure, the more the gravity of Emacs pulls you back. And so I decided I'd go back and try Emacs. And I can't remember. It was preview builds. Mm. I think it might have been preview builds of 24 mm -hmm. were available then. And so I downloaded, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's happened to Emacs in the last 20 years. And I powered it up and I'm like, oh, wow. Yep, I still recognize this. Looks looks pretty much just like it did 20 years ago. It's the same. Yeah, I mean, it obviously it got a lot more functionality. Yeah, 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 um, of course. You know, and so for a few years, I was using Emacs again. Mm. Um, but I never found an Emacs configuration that I really liked. Yeah. And I tried a whole bunch. I tried setting it up from scratch. I mm. tried uh, all sorts of cura uh, curated versions of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the end, I was like, nope, nope, this is just too clunky. It breaks too often. Mm. Um, anytime I updated packages, it seemed to break stuff. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, let's see what else is out there. So I went mm. and looked at a few other things. What really triggered me to change, though, from Emacs was seeing Jason Gilman's talk at Closure Conj where he introduced Proto Rebel. Yeah. Hmm. For, I, for Atom, right? Yeah. And I hadn't even heard yeah. of Atom at the time. And I was like, oh, that looks like a nice integration. Let hmm. me go try that. And I loved it. I thought it was terrific because it showed all of the results in line in Atom. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seemed a really nice, flexible system. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you could extend it with CoffeeScript if, if you felt you wanted to. Yeah. Um, and so I switched, and that was, gosh, I can't remember when he did that talk, but I've been an Atom user ever since. Mm. And I switched from ProtoRepl to Chlorine. Mm -hmm. um, trying to think that was December last year, so I've been a Chlorine user for about six months at this point, seven months. Okay. I don't even know what so Chlorine my day -to -day is, actually. What, what, what is Chlorine? Chlorine is, it's a new closure plugin for Atom. Um, mm -hmm. but it works off a socket REPL. So you don't need, don't need NREPL as a dependency. You don't need an NREPL server up and running. Mm -hmm. You just need a socket REPL. Okay. Uh, and it uses UnREPL under the hood to load the blob into, uh, I think that creates another socket REPL that it uses for the control side mm -hmm. of things. Um, and what I like about that is I can take any closure process I've got. I can add in the JVM option. Yeah. Uh, at startup. And yep. now I've got a closure process I can connect into with my editor and do full evaluation and all the things that I'm used to doing in Emacs, but yeah. I can do it from a nice, friendly IDE, <laughs> well, IDE editor. Yeah. Editor. Um, <laughs> running against any process at all with no extra dependencies. Hmm. Yeah. So you haven't moved it to all the, like, all the cool kids moving to VS Code yet. You know, I keep trying VS Code um, <laughs> and I like it. I mean, it's, it's nice. I just, I haven't managed to get used to the key bindings yeah. and I don't want to redo all of the key bindings just so that I'm comfortable with it. 
Um, I, who knows, I might end up switching to it. Everyone else seems to be loving it. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing for me, though, I looked at it and I thought, like, the branding is a bit weird. Having a, an editor called Versus Code, it's like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, what, why are you, <laughs> is it deliberately provocative? Then I realized, of course, it was something else, but, you know. <laughs> it's, it's you versus Code. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Microsoft Versus Code. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> We were just we were just talking. I think um, just right before we started recording, like the the world has changed so much since since the early days of Microsoft to, you know, Microsoft being the evilest company, if that is a word, you know, back in the day, and then now they are like releasing open source software left and right, and everybody's on VS Code. There are more evil companies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think relatively speaking, <laughs> they became softer. I guess. <laughs> Well, I've, I, I, I would Google personally say that Google is more evil than Microsoft ever was. Yeah, yeah. I, I do actually agree with That's that. That's true. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because you know I've been an Apple user since the very early nineties. Uh, yeah. I started with Apple using System Six, oh. uh, and I ran Tenon Intersystems uh, Mark Ten, which was a BSD four point three Linux mm. Unix, sorry mm -hmm. Unix, yeah, that Unix, ran yeah. on uh, the Mac. And the way it worked was it sort of parasitically took over the scheduling. And so <laughs> you you kind of, you booted up the app and you now had a Unix system that just happened to have uh, a System 6 user interface. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that so was what I used for development I because it had full command line and I was writing a lot of C code back then. So you had uh, Mac OS X before Mac OS X existed. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and I, I stuck with System 6 and then System 7 and through 7.5. Mm. And then I skipped 8 and 9 mm. and then jumped to 10.1. Okay. So for me, you know, Apple Macs have always had a, a Unix-like command line system under the hood. Yeah. For, yeah, yeah. You know, what's that, yeah. 20, 25 plus years. Yeah. Um, so when Microsoft started putting Unix-like stuff on it, um, I'm in the, the insider program for Microsoft and I have run fast ring builds of Windows 10. Mm. So I got very early builds of Windows subsystem for Linux mm. when it could run Ruby, but it couldn't run the JVM. Yeah. And then it could yeah. run the JVM, but it couldn't run Linigan for some of the stuff Linigan did. <laughs> and then it could run Linigan, but it couldn't run boot. Uh, wow. uh, but the nice thing was Microsoft were doing all the bug tracking out in the open. They had yeah. a GitHub yeah. repo. Um, their engineers were very, very proactive in responding to stuff. Mm. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, this, this is different. This is interesting. Mm. Um, mm. And gradually over time, I've adopted much more Microsoft stuff than I ever thought I would. Mm. Uh, my iPhone runs Microsoft Edge, uh, Outlook, uh, Microsoft To-Do, and Cortana. Mm. Um, my laptop is a Windows laptop that mm. I do some closure development on in PowerShell and uh, WSL. Mm. And my desktop, even though it's a Mac, mostly I work inside Parallels running Windows 10 wow. for all of my day-to-day -day stuff. This uh, is like three levels. Even though I still do right? you know, closure development on the terminal. This is horrifying. Side. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have a Mac running Windows in Parallels in which you have WSL. 
that has Linux on it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's like it's, Inception. It's, it's serious Inception. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But but it is it is nice, right? I mean, it's it's wonderful to see like you we could we can do these kind of things these days. I mean, back in the day, the only thing that that I can think of was like the Wine or something to run to port all the Windows APIs onto yeah. onto Linux or something, and that's pretty much it. And then Qt was the biggest cross-platform thing, and there is nothing else. But it still, it still, yeah, it still strikes me personally um, as a little bit sad that we're ending up with like three three operating systems essentially. You know, yeah. when there's definitely scope for a few more. Yeah, yeah so. I mean, there is still a BOS-driven thing called Haiku something. I, every now and then, I download their VM and then play with it a bit, so you can check out. I think uh, Haiku, but there is no other other. Things left. There used to be QNX or something that is, uh, but for embedded real stuff, time yeah, that still yeah, exists, RTOS. So. But they, they, and then there's quite well, a lot Solaris of operating systems at the IoT level. There's quite a. That's probably yeah, where yeah. most of the the actual kind of like let's say innovation is really happening. I think probably at the IoT level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, maybe anyway, we should talk yeah. a bit about closure. I think <laughs> yeah. uh, we are almost like uh, forty <laughs> minutes into the podcast. You know, in the yeah, we're in only forty minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, rest of the eight hours, we can speak about the closure now. Um, so, uh, Sean, um, let's talk about the latest development. Um, why are you doing JDBC? <laughs> Next JDBC, yes. Well, yes. going back to when I first got started with Clojure and we were looking at doing it in production, mm -hmm. um, Clojure 1.3 was in development at the time. And so anyone who was around back then would remember the huge sort of turmoil in the 1.2 to 1.3 mm. uh, change. Mm. Um, in 1.2, we had a monolithic contrib library. Yes. Um, it actually had 63 or 64 sub-projects inside it. Yeah. Um, but it was only being released every time Clojure was released. Yep. So it, it wasn't getting, um, it wasn't being moved forward very fast. Yep. And so they decided that what they'd do is break it up uh, and only the libraries that had active maintainers would go forward, but they'd go forward as separate libraries. Mm. And I wanted to adopt Clojure, but we used SQL databases. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, what's going to happen with uh, Clojure Contrib SQL? Yep. And I was shocked that at the time in Clojure, almost no one seemed to be doing SQL work. And so this was an unmaintained library. Stephen Gilardi yeah. had written it and then had moved on from working with SQL. And I kept sort of jumping up and down going, come on, come on, I want to see a, a SQL <laughs> library. I want to see a SQL library. And I think it was Stu Halloway eventually said, oh, for goodness sake, if you care about it that much, could you maintain it? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I need to use it at work. I'm going to maintain it. Hmm. And so it moved from Clojure Contrib SQL to Clojure Java JDBC. And I used it very heavily at work hmm. ever since. But it, it didn't feel very closure-y. Yeah. Um, and so over time, I, I changed the API twice, in fact, um, with all those naughty breaking changes. And it, it had gotten to the point where it had a lot of history. It was solid. It was in production all over the place. A lot more people now are using SQL with Clojure. Yeah. Um, but the library had ended up with a lot of complexity inside it. Mm -hmm. uh, certain things were hard to do. Certain things were slow. Uh, because of its heritage, 
It had separate paths to run select queries versus DDL operations versus uh, updates and deletions and inserts. Yeah. And I really wanted something simpler and faster and more streamlined. Mm. But I couldn't do it without changing the API. So I started to think about what a modern version of Clojure Java JDBC would look like yeah. uh, and started planning it late last year. And mm. I actually had a, a GitHub repo just privately on OneDrive for months where mm. I was experimenting with, you know, what's the smallest, fastest, um, most idiomatic way to do this. Mm. Um, and then I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I think I've got enough functionality here to show people. Mm. Uh, it's a different API, but it was simpler, faster, and I thought a lot easier to work with than Java JDBC. Mm. But I still hadn't decided where it was going to live. I had, hadn't decided what to do with it. And so I wouldn't accept pull requests on it. I kept it mostly hidden for the, the first sort of few alphas mm. um, because I thought maybe I would add it into Clojure Java JDBC as new namespaces. Mm. Um, and people started using it and giving me good feedback. And we had a big discussion about contrib libraries earlier this year. Yeah. And in the end, I decided to keep Next JDBC where it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it does its CI up on Circle CI. It's got its documentation auto generated on CLJ doc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it lives in my personal GitHub repo. Yeah, and it was yeah. interesting to see the feedback from people that mm. they were like, well, you know, that's okay. If it's got your name in it, we don't really care. We don't care if it's in the namespaces. Yeah. Um, but that, that was what drove next JDBC. And I really, I wanted it to be much simpler to have a much smaller API. Mm. It now uses uh, the uh, JDBC execute mm -hmm. method inside for all SQL. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's much more consistent in its behavior. Uh, I wanted it to support Datafy and Nav yeah. uh, so that if you use it with Rebel or similar tools, you can actually navigate through uh, essentially the schema of your data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted it to use namespaced keywords for columns mm -hmm. um, so it fitted more with sort of the direction that Clojure was going with. So yeah. that, that was what drove me. And we have it in production. We're using it in production alongside oh. Clojure Java JDBC. Mm. Um, and I'm using Next JDBC for all of my new uh, work in Clojure that interacts with databases. Yeah, yeah. So the, apart from this, I mean, you're involved in multiple projects like CLJ Time, and you've been contributing to a lot of other projects, including Clojure Core. So uh, as a person who has seen all the controversies around all the community-driven versus all this stuff, uh, so... What 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 is your opinion on on this thing? Yeah, it, I think <laughs> I I got to a point where I was I was a bit frustrated about what was officially said about Contrib. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the discussions that have been had over the years about the pros and cons of it, there wasn't a solid foundational understanding of what yeah. Contrib was. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. People were coming at it from a lot of different positions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I kind of badgered Alex a bit about it and said, you know, we really do need to have this 
stated much more clearly because I think if it was much clearer what Contrib was about, people would stop kind of haranguing the Closure Core team yep. about those Contrib libraries. Hmm. And we've seen several pages go up on Closure.org now that help explain what Contrib is, how it's governed, um, how it got to be the way it is. Yep. Uh, there's a great blog post from, I think, Stuart Sierra, dating back to 2012, which is on the Closure.org site, mm. that talks about how Contrib actually came into being mm. uh, and how it went from the 1.2 monolithic Contrib to yep. the 1.3 individual projects. Mm. And so all of that's been surfaced now. I think it's much, much clearer what Contrib really is. Yeah. And I think over time what we'll see is more pieces of Closure's core infrastructure split out into individual libraries within mm. the, config, the Contrib umbrella. Mm. But we probably won't see otherwise new things crop up in Contrib. I think yeah. we're at a point now where the ecosystem is so rich and so well established mm. that people will naturally create their libraries elsewhere, which is fine. Yeah. Um, and gradually over time, I expect some of the Contrib libraries to be uh, to go from active to stable to mm. inactive. Yeah, uh, and that's also fine. Hmm. And and uh, so CLJ time is also something that that you contributed a lot, right? And, yeah, um, but it it is completely out of country, actually. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I was the the lead maintainer for Congo Mongo for a while yeah. when we were yeah. using MongoDB. Um, I ended up co-maintaining CLJ time with Michael Clishan. Yeah. Um, partly because we relied on it very heavily at work. Mm. Uh, and it lost its primary maintainer. Mm. Um, and since then, of course, now that Java 8's everywhere and we have Java time built in, yeah. CLJ time is is now in sort of maintenance mode, yeah. uh, and we're actively encouraging people to move off that. But yeah, there, there's a bunch of stuff. I'm trying to think what else. I, I've taken over Honey SQL recently mm -hmm. uh, because the maintainer kind of stepped away from that and we use yeah. it very heavily at work. Yeah. Um, in the contrib libraries, uh, core cache and core memoize, memoize. Yeah. which Fogus created, yeah. um, he hasn't been very active on mm. those. And so I've, they were transferred to me. Mm. Um, and again, we rely on them very, very heavily. Yeah. Uh, and I just yesterday put out a screencast of how I went about fixing uh, one of the bugs that just got recently uh, created for core memoize. Memoize, yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, so I'm you know, pretty actively maintaining those. Mm. Tools.cli is another contrib library that I maintain. I've used that again. Yeah. Lost its maintainer, and yeah. we relied on it quite heavily, so I yeah. took it over. Um, Java JDBC, obviously, I've been yep. maintaining for eight years. Mm. Um, Next.jdbc, which is you know what I consider to be the next generation of it. Yeah. And you know if you go to look my GitHub page, you'll see dozens. Bunch of, bunch I of can't ours, remember yeah. how many repos. I don't know, like eighty repos. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of them were things that I forked, intending mm. to maintain, and then found, you know, I didn't actually need them much. Mm. Um, for a while, uh, I had the most active fork of CLJ soap, oh. and I started getting <laughs> wow. a lot of questions about it. I, I'd done it because um, I found a version of the library that didn't run on 1.3, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so I forked it, got it running on 1.3, tried mm. to use it to talk to a third-party system at work, mm. and eventually gave up and went um, a different approach. Mm. But I started getting so many questions about CLJ SOAP that in yeah. the end I had to put a notice on the repo saying, if, if you want to help with it, please fork it, you know, and and run with it but i'm not maintaining this so yeah. op open source is is forever because if you do start to maintain something you can guarantee someone mm. will find it yeah. and want you to fix a bug or help them use it or something or flame you for not getting it perfectly right according yes, to their needs yes yeah. yes you know <laughs> there, there's, there's definitely um there's a lot of great stuff about being an open source project maintainer but sometimes you do kind of want to reach through the wires and slap people about. <laughs> the head go, Don't be so damned ungrateful. <laughs> yes. There should be there should be something you know some some sort of a REPL command. I'm pretty sure power, there is an Emacs command for yeah. that. And I, yeah. I I I feel for the Closure Core folks because yeah. you know there's so much grief that they get over some of these things. And you know Stu and Rich have been very very clear over the years that just because you create an open source project doesn't mean you owe anyone anything. Yeah. Um, you know, you've created it, you've developed it for whatever your needs are, you've mm -hmm. made it open source, Yeah. other people can use it, but then, you know, these people turn around and demand you fix this bug. This bug's holding up my entire production infrastructure. And I've done it myself, I must admit. I mean, I, I, I yeah, berated yeah. project maintainers because, you know, this, this is a terrible bug. How on earth could you let this get into your code? And why won't you fix it immediately for me? Um, yeah. And then I go, wow, don't I sound like an ass? I, sh I shouldn't do that. that. That's not nice. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing, right? Especially in terms of open source, because um, where does the where does the ownership lie? Especially once the, for example, if you have seen like CLJ time and other things that you're maintaining, it's it's really awesome that you're maintaining all this. Uh, I would say even one of the core libraries that that everybody is using, you know, JDBC is something that everybody uses practically. Mm. So uh, and CLJ time, I, I'm pretty sure there are plenty of projects, and I I've used it myself uh, everywhere. Um, so, but at the same time, you have this this risk of uh, one person just maintaining it, right? And then if if not finding someone to to hand it over, then it's an extremely risky proposition. Uh, yeah, and it it is tough. And I mean, mm -hmm. when we stopped using MongoDB, I continued using uh, maintaining Congo Mongo for a while. Yeah. Um, but I was really trying to get someone to take that over. Uh, yeah. And then you know, as the maintainer of it, I was going, well, you know, if you're starting using MongoDB. I'd go use Mongo because that's actively maintained and Congo yep. Mongo isn't. Yep. Um, but someone yeah. did step up. They were using Congo Mongo at work. Mm. Um, mm. They were heavily invested in MongoDB. Yep. And so they've done a lot of work on it since I handed the project off to them. Mm. Um, CLJ Time's kind of the odd one because we've sort of actively deprecated it and told people to use Java Time instead. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people still seem to pick it up and run with it, even though the README is quite clear. Yeah, that's that's uh, an interesting thing, right? Because if you think about it, we have JDBC, and and there is a nice closure API that you're building on top of it. Um, don't you think CLJ Time has the similar kind of vibe? I mean, it, for me, it feels oh, like... Oh, sure. It, yeah. it absolutely does. But yeah. um, it's built on top of Joda Time. Yeah, exactly. Which and is the yeah. Joda project 
has said, stop using Joda, yes. go migrate to Java time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And mm. so that's really why CLJ time mm. is in maintenance mode at this point. Yeah. Um, Probably there is a there is a need for CLJ time next. Yeah. <laughs> that is going to be on top of Java yeah, time. Yeah, I, I, time, time and date is such a hard area. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, I, I've said to people, go use Java time directly via interop. Yep. Or if you really want a wrapper, there's closure.java Java time. Mm. Uh, and there's a newer one just come out, which is uh, cljc.java time, I think. No. Something like that. Okay. Which is a I mean, it's very, very thin wrapper around Java time. But it also provides the exact same API in JavaScript. JavaScript yeah. And it has an implementation behind it, mm. essentially of Java time. But yeah. for JavaScript, I think there was so a kind of cool. Yeah, I think there was a presentation about it at the Closure North. Closure North, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, it looked very interesting because you know I think there's a lot of people wanting to use those kind of affordances on on both sides. So I think it's very interesting yeah, project. It, yeah. it, it's interesting for me because I I work with uh, Kevin Downey, hired man on uh, yeah yeah most right. of the stuff, uh, and we are the Closure team. He and I, hmm. and he. He doesn't have a lot of time for wrapper libraries, hmm. Um, hmm. you know, unless they offer something beyond the API. As far as he's concerned, just use Java interop because yeah. you know it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Hmm. And with Java time, that's mostly okay. Hmm. But there are certain things where it's like, oh, that amount of interop looks really ugly. Here's what it would look like in the closure wrapper. Yes, this is a win. This mm. is much more readable closure code. Mm. Mm. Um, so, so he and I do sort of have these discussions about whether or not replacing this particular piece of Java interop with yeah. this particular closure library is worth it or not. Mm. Uh, and I've certainly found since I've been working with him, I tend to drop down to Java interop more often than going out and finding a wrapper library now. Now that might change if I started doing closure script as well. Yeah. Um, because I would want, certainly for something like time, yeah, I would interface. want the same API so I could share source yeah. code between ClojureScript and Clojure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So in in terms of your your team, uh, because you, you've transitioned from the other language to Clojure, so how, how hard it was to make them start on Clojure? You know, it wasn't that hard. It was it was really interesting because uh, we were a team of three at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I introduced Clojure, and both of my teammates were kind of like, oh, that looks like fun. That looks interesting. Yeah, you know, we'll get paid to learn a new language and, you know, improve our <laughs> skills. And yeah. it, it did work fairly well for quite a while. Um, mm. The more Clojure we got, though, the more our development processes changed. Mm. Uh, and gradually, our deployment processes changed too. And in the end, uh, those two team members both moved on. Mm. One went back to uh, a Cold Fusion shop. Wow. Uh, they'd been a Cold Fusion developer for years, a decade or more, I think. Mm. And, you know, they liked Cold Fusion, and that's yeah. fine. Sure. Um, and Cold Fusion developers are in short supply, so, you know, they can get nice really, jobs. Really, really nice. Well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the other team member moved on to go and work. Uh, in a much more closure-rich environment. 
So they, they kind of went in opposite directions. And mm. um, when we hired in Kevin, mm. uh, you know, he's only ever done closure. I mean, that this is what's kind of so awesome about working with him. Yeah. Um, closure was basically his first language. Mm. And so he's, he's very uh, steeped in closure thinking. Mm. Um, and that's really nice because we don't, we don't end up having discussions about, should we do this in closure? Yeah. We might have discussions about how, how we do, do we? this exactly. in closure. Yeah. Uh, and the two of us, you know, we're, we're pretty darn productive. Mm. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you can get a lot done in closure with very few people. Yeah. So how, how does your stack look like in terms of closure? Uh, well, most of the apps we have are web-based. So they're Ring. Most of them are Composure. Mm. Uh, we have one that uses uh, Biddy for routing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we run on the embedded Jetty adapter mm -hmm. uh, for everything. Uh, we use Selma for any HTML templating we need. Mm -hmm. um, several of the apps use Core Async fairly heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the different apps use a lot of different things depending on on what they're specifically for. Yeah. Um, we have uh, OAuth 2 authentication system. We've built uh, our own OAuth 2 uh, server. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a whole bunch of uh, Apache libraries mm -hmm. bound into that on the Java side. Yeah. Uh, our sort of corporate where is all based on Office and Microsoft authentication. Mm. So okay. we have a bunch of Microsoft libraries that we use for all of the interaction with the Microsoft systems yeah. there. Um, it, it's a pretty varied setup. Uh, yeah. uh, we use Redis, so we use Redis on mm. because that handles the uh, clustering very nicely. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of Java level stuff that we're using um, mm. and just a huge grab bag of closure libraries. But the core stack is yeah. Jetty, Ring, Composure, Selma. Okay. And, and on the front end, you Java don't use much uh, ClojureScript, uh, I suppose. No, we, we looked at ClojureScript um, back in 2014 and 15. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, that was pretty early days for ClojureScript. Mm. The tooling really wasn't there. The language wasn't uh, on a par with Clojure. Yeah. But we built a proof of concept, a real-time mm. dashboard with ARM. Mm -hmm. and Senti for the WebSockets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that went reasonably well as a mm. small project. And mm. then we rewrote it using Reagent um, okay. just to see the pros and cons. And we yeah. decided we liked Reagent a lot better. Mm. But the tooling was was very sharp and very rough around the edges. Yeah. Um, and we kept running into things you couldn't do in ClojureScript that you could do in Clojure. So we had to keep remembering that it was a dialect and not really the same language compiling to JavaScript. Mm, yeah. And in the end, we decided that whilst we could probably use it for internal projects back then, mm. we didn't feel at all comfortable putting it in front of our customers around the world, yeah. particularly because it's a global customer base and a lot of users are on either slow connections or slow devices, or mm. certainly were back then. Mm. Mm. Uh, and to be honest, was hard to find ClojureScript developers. Yeah. So we ended up going with React and JavaScript, mm. and we hired in uh, two developers to build the front end, mm. and they're still with us, and we mm. have 
the whole front end of the app if you go to any of the dating sites. Mm -hmm. It's a pure JavaScript React mm -hmm. uh, app that talks to Clojure services on the back end. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're building Clojure that bringing people together. So yes, that that's kind of what we like. And I mean, I don't know if you can see the T-shirt. <laughs> yes. Um, we make real connections happen. Oh, awesome. um, which is is kind of our sort of thing. Um, so with with the uh, with the React uh, people, because um, they they're kind of like have the GraphQL stuff now, and um, mm -hmm. you know, and GraphQL is the big next thing for you know for APIs. Let's say, is that something which you're also like experimenting with? Yeah, actually, we have uh, one of our apps, which Kevin built uh, over the last year, uh, which all of the API for that is GraphQL. So we're using uh, Licinia mm. for that on yeah. the closure side. Yeah. And that's proved to be a very nice, flexible way to interact between a closure server and a, a React-based JavaScript app. Mm. And you're still, and are, are you kind of like getting the data via the JDBC libraries? Because you know you're not running a, a graph database at the back, are you? No, um, we we use Redis for some stuff, but pretty much everything we do is MySQL. Mm. We have a, a big, fast, well-tuned cluster of Percona five point mm. seven servers, yeah, uh, and so all of our data goes in and out of the system through. Closure Java JDBC for the legacy code mm. and next.jdbc for code we're writing these days. Mm. Um, and then it's all transformed, it's all data inside, mm. and then it's mm. fairly easy to transform it in and out of whatever we need for GraphQL. Does the, I mean, and this is a random thought, but does your like uh, Datify stuff with the, 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 does that help with the GraphQL? We're not using it in that area at the moment. Um, it's going to take a little while before the Datafy nav stuff kind of permeates through. Mm -hmm. um, mostly where I leverage that right now is in development and debugging right. because I use Cognitech's Rebel right. all yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I'm you know, working with code that is pulling data out of the database, I can navigate through it automatically mm -hmm. across multiple tables. And so mm -hmm. I'm finding it very useful from that point of view. Um, I think we probably will look at uh, doing datafication and navigation on other things over time, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's still kind of early days for that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, it, it takes a little while before you really see a good application of these things. Yeah. And on the same note of uh, making real connections, thanks a lot for managing Clojure and Slack and everything. You know, I know you're one of the admins there. Yeah, and, or maybe even yeah. the maybe you were one of the persons who created the organization. Probably no, no, no. Mm -hmm. I I just okay. I just got on board with the admin team pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's I think it was just one of those experiments. It's like oh, Slack. You know, communities are using Slack. Um, there's a closure Slack. Okay, I'll go join that. Yeah. And to this day, I'm still absolutely stunned that we've ended up with fifteen thousand people. Yeah. Uh, on the closure <laughs> Slack. Yeah. Now I think. <laughs> Only somewhere between about fifteen hundred to two thousand are active on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis, mm. um, but it's yeah, still, but still it's, it's, it's a, a very very active closure community. Yeah, that's true. And also, I mean, the the as I, as I was talking uh, to you right before we we clicked record, I mean, I've seen you in the closure community for so long 
you know, it, it's like it's synonymous. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> apparently Sean is part of Closure stuff. You know, it's impossible for me to see, not to see your name anymore <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> Uh, because you're you're so helpful on Slack, you're so helpful on even on Zulip. You know, you you joined early on there, and on Closureverse, for example, mm-hmm. and and you take time to help other people, which is which is really amazing, and all the libraries that you're maintaining, and and this is extremely helpful, and oh, and you. hopefully you know uh, uh, you you keep making more of uh, Closure stuff at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're deeply invested in Closure at work at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And also, I see, I see every time there is a new release, I immediately see your email saying, "Oh, we tried this yeah. alpha on our systems, and <laughs> yeah. everything is fine." It's like yeah. if you say everything is fine, I'm like, "Oh, okay, that seems like a big code base." So <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah, I mean, I, and with this all started because you know we got going before Closure One Point Three was actually gold release. So yeah. if we wanted to go to production, we had to go to production on uh, pre-release build. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's so amazing about Closure is it's so incredibly stable hmm. um, that we've been able to adopt alpha and beta builds of every single Closure release and go to production on them. Yeah. Um, and it's, I'm trying to think, I, I think we got shot in the foot once mm. and we dodged a bullet once. When mm. 1.5.0 came out, mm-hmm. uh, it had a bug in that was quite a showstopper in production for some people. Yeah. And 1.5.1 mm. was released very, very quickly. And it mm. just so happened that our uh, release cadence had mm. us go to production on a release candidate Mm. And our next production release happened to fall after 151. Ah. So we didn't actually have 150 in production. Okay. But it Excellent. was almost pure coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when uh, co- the spec stuff started, mm. we adopted that very early on. Um, yeah. We, we ran with pre-release builds of 1.9, pre-release builds of 1.10. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get mm. hold of spec 2. Uh, we actually have a branch of our code base at work that runs on it. Mm. Um, but until Alex gives me the green light that it's supposed to be, you know, yeah, yeah, robust I'll, enough I'll, and stable I'll... enough to be used in a real world app, I'm, I'm not going to pull the trigger on that. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, as a company, we do try to be, um, to take advantage of the new things that come along mm. yeah. um, because it makes our lives easier. Yeah, and also it's, you're 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 providing like a, a real world code base uh, feedback immediately to to and that is also helping a lot to the community, right? I mean, there might be other people who are not as fast as uh, you in in terms of adopting, but at least you're helping them, giving some sort of an idea of where where the yeah. Code is. yeah. And I I really do want to encourage people because mm. you know I'm very very happy working with Closure. Mm. And I've been very, very happy working with Clojure Alpha and Beta builds. Mm. And so I really do want to encourage more people to use Clojure mm. uh, to pick up the new features as soon as they become mm. available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, again, spec two, it's kind of an interesting thing. I'd love to encourage people to play with it. Mm. Um, but if I encourage people too much, Alex usually pops up and goes, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, you know, it's, it's not ready for release yet. <laughs> da, da, don't yeah, do yeah. that. <laughs> Um, I, I, one of the things but, I use from you actually is uh, CLJ new. Um, oh, because yes. that makes it pretty easy to start a new Depths.Eden product project. Which I've got to say, for me, I, I think that's been for me for my personal workflow and, and and at work as well. That that's been huge. The Depths.Eden stuff it really has. Yeah, 
Yeah, we we switched over completely last year to uh, CLJ and Depth CDN. Mm. Um, we obviously, when we got started with it back in 2011, the only game in town was Linegan. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, and I tried early versions of Boot when they appeared, and it seemed it wasn't cross-platform, and it seemed kind of fragile yeah, and weird. Yeah. Uh, mm. But when 2.5, I think it was, came out, um, that... That was just a, a really strong, solid, stable product at that point. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and we actually switched from Linegan to Boot in, I want to say 2015. I think it was December of 2015. Mm. Um, and we we hit a bit of a wall with Linegan. Mm. Um, we have a mono repo. We have about 30 sub-projects in our mono repo. Mm. Um, we needed to be able to manage and build them all individually but we also have a lot of uh, source level cross usage yeah. uh, and we didn't want to have to build artifacts just to depend on projects across the mono repo. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is legacy reason because of the cold fusion stuff, which is all based on using closure from source, not from libraries, even though we could package everything up in libraries. Mm. So we switched to boot, um, it was much, much easier for us to build custom tasks. Mm. Uh, we we kind of got in very deep with boot. We ended up with a, something like a 2,000 line uh, build file. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> um, which had a huge number of tasks in it that all should have been separated out into different namespaces. Right, right. But, you know, you start off and you go, well, I'll just add this one task. <laughs> I'll just add this second task. Mm -hmm. And I might as well add these next three tasks. And then suddenly you've got this this giant monstrosity <laughs> um but we had begun to run into some some weird edge case bugs with boot um with the pods and the way pods refresh we'd started to see strange um bugs from that and i i did eventually open a bug report because we were getting it often enough that it was clearly either something we were doing wrong in our usage or a bug in the pod handling yeah um but it was really hard to produce a repo case, repro case because it, we were the only people seeing this. Yeah. And we were one of the few people who had such a gigantic boot system. Mm. So when the CLI came out, um, as, as has always been the case with me, I'm like, oh, you know, new, shiny, let me go try it. Yeah. And I realized that it would solve a lot of the problems we had mm. because we could have every sub-project with its own depth CDN file. Mm we could have kind of a master depth mm. EDN, mm. and then we could easily pick and choose which sub-projects constituted any given artifact we wanted to run or build. Mm. And so we switched over, we, we took boot out of the picture completely, mm. um, and we have a small shell script called build, which you can give it a, a list of uh, essentially alias groups and a sub-project. Yep. And it will loop through all of those and mm. run the various things. So if you, for example, wanted to build an Uberjar and put it up on a test server, you could say build Uberjar project name, uh, run CIFTP uh, project name and the target. Mm. And it would just go off and do that. Mm. And so, yeah, everything we do is aliases and, and DevCDN and this little tiny shell script to glue it all together. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I got a little uh, a little comment the other day actually from uh, Mike Fikes, 
And he said there's such a thing in Depths.Eden, Eden, which I've never heard of, called the Caulfield comma. <laughs> so, yeah. So what, what's, this, what's the Caulfield comma, Sean? <laughs> I, I don't think I originated it, but once I'd seen it happen as a workaround, uh, I was the one popping up on chat all the time going, ah, if you use a comma, that'll work. Okay, okay so the way... <laughs> So the, the issue is that um, the the CLJ is a script. It's a shell script. Yeah. And so it's taking uh, EDN from the depths files and things from the command line. And ultimately, it's creating cached versions of uh, main operations, libraries, and dependencies, and so on. If you look in any folder you view CLJ in, you'll see a .cp cache yeah. uh, mm. directory. Yep. And inside there are the various files. Well, because the way it works with the main ops is it writes it out to the file, and then when it gets to the run part of it, it sucks the file in as a set of command line options. Mm. By going from closure to shell, back out to shell, back into closure, <laughs> it's really hard to get the escaping right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you do something simple, like trying to start a socket rebel, and you say, okay, we need the JVM opt minus D closure server rebel equals uh, brace port mm. space 5000 comma uh, space uh, accept space and the server name. <laughs> and it goes through and, and what pops out is individual command line arguments. Right. And of course it breaks. Mm. And someone somewhere said, ah, but Clojure uses comma as white space. I wonder. And it just happens to work. <laughs> and because I was using depths so much, yeah. I'd got commas in all of my compound stuff. Mm. And someone jokingly one day, when I'd popped up for like the 20th time saying, if you use commas, that'll work, said, ah, the Caulfield comma. And I'm like, no, 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 don't, no. So we're compounding um, that now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so so I'm I'm forever going to be known for a comma. <laughs> it would be amazing after could, all could these years. Of, yeah, it could be worse. Could be worse. So. After all these years of work and all these years of libraries yeah. and every possible language, and in the end, well, it, it, it's, it's actually the really funny because there the, the, the are certain things that um, you know get people's names attached to them in really unfortunate ways. Yeah. Uh, from the C world, there's something known as the Koenig uh, namespace lookup rule. Okay. And it's named after Andrew Koenig. Mm. And I, someone pointed me at a piece he'd written or an interview he'd done where he actually said, I don't know why my name's attached to this. I did not come up with <laughs> this uh, particular lookup rule. I was yeah. just editor at the time and, and right. you know, talk about it. <laughs> he said, you know, I kind of wish I could remember who it was. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I probably shouldn't put my head above the parapet and say it was me. <laughs> but it was. Um, we were in committee. Um, we were arguing. We'd spent several meetings and lots of working group time looking at how friend and namespace lookup interacted in mm. C++. Mm. And it turned out that there was this one particular case that was quite common where you, you essentially needed friend to be uh, transitive mm -hmm. across namespace lookups because you you needed to be able to bring in friend functions from a namespace and have them 
automatically get picked up in the lookup chain without having to do some syntax to say, oh, when I say plus here, yeah, I mean the from the, this yeah. friend function from that namespace over there. Yeah. And we tried all sorts of things, and I somewhat jokingly suggested what I thought was this really complicated but clever, clever mm. um, extension to the lookup rules. Mm. And I, I really meant it as a joke because <laughs> it was really complicated. And the committee sort of thought about it and went, you know, that actually does solve the problem. <laughs> and it, it isn't too horrible for us to write it down and, and describe how it behaves. Mm. And I was just like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> and I just feel very lucky that Andrew Koenig's name somehow got attached to this. <laughs> and so it's forever been known as the Koenig uh, namespace lookup rule. So, no. so there you go. So you can't escape no, the comma. Now you're wondering... Yeah, uh, no, exactly. I don't think I'm gonna ever escape the karma. <laughs> As you know, this 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 podcast is super popular, so from now on you'll be you know known for the karma. <laughs> maybe you should just register the domain, comma dot carfield or carfield dot karma. Like Amazon bought their own TLD, so you should get the karma TLD. Yeah, could be very valuable real estate that we're sitting on. Anyway, so wow, time flies. From APL to closure. Yeah, um, back again. So, any, and back again. <laughs> so, any uh, closing thoughts, Sean, about closure and about the work and, you know, all the stuff that is going on around the world? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people talk about the joy of working with closure. Mm -hmm. um, and when people ask me, you know, people who aren't closure programmers, when they ask me, you know, why do you like closure? I say, because it makes programming fun. It's, it's this very sort of um, tangible and malleable thing. You've got a REPL, you're interacting with your code right there. Um, this weekend, I've actually been going through the third edition of um, Dimitri's web development book yeah. uh, because I want to go back and learn the current state of the art with ClojureScript tooling. Mm. And I figured that his book would be a, a good way to get into at least some of that Yeah. Um, with Luminous. And... Mm -hmm. My first sort of roadblock was, oh, it's it's all Linigan and NREPL based, and my current editor doesn't do NREPL. Hmm. And then I was like, wait, all I have to do is start a socket REPL, and it'll all just work. So, you know, I added a line profile hmm. called socket, hmm. which adds the JVM op to start a socket REPL. And so whenever I'm doing any of the examples from the book, I just say line with profile plus socket, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Connect my editor to it, and right there, I've got all of the code, I've got all of the the, the muscle memory of mm -hmm. everything that I do working with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I really love about Clojure. And that's what I tell people, that it's it's so involving, mm -hmm. it's so so fun. Yeah. You know, and we live in a world where, you know, fun sometimes isn't a bit of short supply, particularly when you're working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to find something that will bring joy to your work. I think it's terrific. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's an excellent sentiment, here, here. I think, which we can all get behind here. Yeah. Agreed. So I think um, thanks again, Sean, for uh, spending this time with us. And uh, hopefully your cats are not really uh, agitated that much. <laughs> no, <you>. one <laughs> of them's bored and she's got up and she's wandering around. And I'm surprised <laughs> she hasn't started yowling. The rest of them are all sacked out because it's just so hot here. Uh, okay. Uh, so, um, but seriously, though, all all the all the hard work that you're putting in uh, to in the open 
uh, with, the, with the libraries, with uh, participating in the community and everything that you're doing. Thanks a lot for that. And thanks again for taking the time to, to join us today and sharing your uh, vast experience with us. And hopefully well, thanks, we'll, guys. It's, it's been a blast. Thank you for having me of on. Of course it yeah, is. Yeah, awesome. yeah. And hopefully we'll, we'll get you back again and then discuss APL. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there should be a podcast that reads out APL code loud. That, oh that, gosh, that, yeah, that, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that's it from us for episode number fifty-one. Uh, Ray, any closing thoughts? Uh, well, no, not really. I mean, you know, it's been a really great uh, conversation. Uh, it's you know, amazing, you know, to 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 meet. I've, I've talked to Sean occasionally in Slack, you know, once in a while, and uh, always super chill and friendly and. So it's really nice to have a personal conversation and uh, well, I'll, we'll do a bit more of this in Slack as well. And I, I love using your, your, uh, your, you know, your code and, and your bytes. And, and so it was great to get some, some new experiences today as well, because there were some things you were talking about that I didn't know about. So, um, you know, I'm pretty sure the listeners will have got that as well. So thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So goodbye and then we'll see you in episode number 52